And just as they're heading out, Gidmore is going to give us our reading, which is James 1, verses 9 to 18. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. Since they will pass away like a wildflower, for the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, by dear brother, my dear brothers and sisters, for every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chooses to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be kind or first fruit of all he created. This is the word of the Lord. So we're continuing uh, with uh, the book of James. Uh, if you've got your Bibles there, that'll be really helpful to um, follow along. Um, what do we pursue most in life? What do we aspire to? Uh, I recently read the results of a survey which asked a question, if you could say in one word what you want more of in life, what would it be? And the top three answers were happiness, money, and freedom. And when I looked into it, what was meant by freedom was, was really, uh, I want to be able to do what I want, when I want. And I'm thinking of some of the things that people aspire to, which um, for the most part are not bad things in themselves. So for example, good grades at school or university, uh, a good job, a career, uh, a family, health and fitness, material wealth. Uh, and with that, of course, comes uh, freedom from a, from a worldly perspective, I guess, and, and perhaps more choice, uh, all sorts of things that people set their sights on, all sorts of things that people make uh, perhaps their number one priority. And two things occurred to me. Firstly, some people may never be in a position to attain some of those things. Uh, for example, someone who's born in a village in the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, and misses out on any kind of formal education, that person is uh, unlikely ever to be wealthy. It's not impossible, but it's very unlikely. Uh, another example, uh, last week I attended the Scholars' Assembly here at TSAC. It's a great event uh, where students are presented with academic awards, and over a third of the college were awarded either bronze, silver, or gold academic award, and I think that's really encouraging. Um, and there probably are students who uh, might be able to get an award if they worked a bit harder. Uh, but there will also be quite a high percentage of students who are already working at or uh, near their maximum capacity. 
and they didn't get an award. And, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I think the important thing is always uh, that we do our best. But the point I'm making is that not everyone in the world can attain the kind of things that our culture thinks everybody should be trying to attain, that everybody should maybe put as their, their, their sort of number one priority. The second thing that occurred to me was this. One could attain any of those things, qualifications, accolades, career, family, fit, healthy body, wealth, whatever it is. In fact, somebody could attain all of those things and still be a, a deeply selfish and unpleasant person. And even more alarming, one could attain all of that and still be alienated from God. So we're striving for things that we're certainly not guaranteed. And if we get the things that we're striving for, we could potentially still be appalling people who are missing the whole point of life. Do you think this could indicate that as a culture, we have our priorities wrong. I'm, th I'm talking in terms of what we put as our number one priority. Jesus said, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. In other words, don't even make your most basic needs your number one priority, but seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. You know, the gospel is the great equalizer. God's love, grace, and mercy are available to everyone, regardless of their race, nationality, physical appearance, intellect, health, wealth, income, uh, life opportunities, or anything else. So James, uh, in this instance, he's addressing believers in humble circumstances, uh, those who are economically poor, which was the majority of Christians in the first century. And he says, don't worry. Don't worry about being poor. In fact, rejoice, because all the riches of heaven are yours. He says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. In other words, they should rejoice because they are sons and daughters of the living God, and you can't get higher than that. They're forgiven and reconciled to God. They've discovered their true purpose in life. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit and are being changed and transformed into the likeness of Christ. And they have the sure and certain hope of resurrection life. That is to say, they will live forever with Jesus in a world that's been made perfect. Being poor in no way inhibits the believer from receiving all of the blessings that God has in store for us. Conversely, in terms of the kingdom, being rich is of no advantage whatsoever. If anything, wealth is a hindrance. Very often, uh, people who are very wealthy become, well, the more wealthy somebody becomes, the more dependent they become on their wealth. And that can make it very difficult for someone to put their trust in Jesus. You remember the rich young ruler. Uh, Jesus told him to sell everything that he had, give his money to the poor, and follow him, follow Jesus. But he couldn't do it. Perhaps that rich young ruler lived for another, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years, and then he died. So at the end of the day, he chose to be separated from God forever, 
rather than be separated from his wealth for maybe a few decades. Jesus emphasizes the fleeting nature of wealth. He says, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. Of course, he's talking about the rich who know and love Jesus. Uh, we know that, there's, that, that it's not a sin to be wealthy. God looks at our, the attitude of our hearts and um, how we view wealth and what we do with our wealth. Uh, but Jesus says, uh, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. In other words, uh, they've got nothing to rejoice about since they will pass away like a wildflower, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Now, he was writing to Christians who really knew about the transient nature of wealth. Uh, Some of them might have been quite wealthy before they became Christians, but we know uh, that the church was heavily persecuted in the first century. And uh, there would have been those Christians who had their possessions confiscated. There would be others who had to flee their homes and leave everything behind. Uh, So for the most part, James is writing to people who really know from first-hand experience that wealth does not last. It cannot be relied upon. Yet the rich can use their wealth like a security blanket. But no amount of wealth can help you uh, if you're facing the loss of a loved one or you've been diagnosed with an incurable disease or betrayed by a friend or any number of painful and difficult situations. Broadly speaking, uh, the rich are no better off than the poor in those kinds of situations. They're still painful. They're still difficult. In fact, a poor person who knows and loves Jesus is infinitely better off than a rich person who has rejected Jesus because a poor person has hope and security and the knowledge of things to come. Real faith is steadfast. We must be steadfast in our pursuit of God's kingdom and his righteousness. Only then will we know what it means to be truly rich, not materially rich, but spiritually rich and rich in terms of what we have to look forward to. And those other things, education, career, family, our our finances, it's not that those things don't matter. There's nothing wrong with wanting to do well in those areas of our lives, but they should be subordinate to our relationship with God and his primary aim for us, which is to make us more like Jesus. James continues, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So yes, life will involve trials. Uh, We looked at that last week. And to be honest, in many ways, the poor will face a greater number of trials. But it's no coincidence that in the first century and even today, Christianity is very appealing to the poor. In many cases, trials are what brings a person to Christ in the first place. And when Christians face trials, which we do, God will use them to strengthen us and help us to become the people that he's created us to be. And James says that the believer who perseveres under those trials is blessed because at the end of it all, he or she will receive the crown of life. That is to say, instead of perishing and being cut off from God forever, the believer will inherit eternal life with God 
in a renewed and restored creation. But James isn't saying, right, you've got to go through this really tough test. You've got to get through all these trials, and if you manage that, then you'll be fit for heaven. Uh, Life is not some kind of uh, tough mudder course that we've got to get through to earn a a little medal or our crown at the end, as if you know we get through those trials and then we've earned it. We've earned this crown. That's not what James is saying at all. The crown uh, or salvation is guaranteed, it says, to all those who love Jesus, those who love and follow Jesus, regardless of any trials that they do or uh, do not face. It's not about what we've done. It's about what Jesus has done for us. But the person who faithfully perseveres under trial demonstrates that they have a genuine love for God. Real faith is steadfast. We are steadfast in our love for God, no matter what's happening in our lives, no matter what's happening in the world around us. Because at the end of the day, we don't love God because of what he can do for us. We love God because of his nature and his character. We love God because of who he is. So we've seen that we must be steadfast in our pursuit of God's kingdom and his righteousness. We must be steadfast in our love of God. And now we're going to see uh, that we must be steadfast in our resolve to fight against the sin in our lives. James talks about temptation. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. When we're tempted and that temptation leads us into sin, uh, we very often have a tendency to to want to blame someone else. We blame God. We blame the devil. We blame uh, other people. We blame anyone but ourselves. We see it right at the beginning of the Bible in, in the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve com- committed the first ever sin. It's the sin from which all other sins originate, hence the expression original sin. They ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, that is to say, uh, they decided that they could be independent of God and they could decide for themselves what is good and evil. It's like, we don't need God to tell us that. We'll work this out for ourselves. We'll make our own decisions about what is right and what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. That's what this this tree of the knowledge of good and evil symbolizes. And when God questioned them about what they'd done, neither of them would take responsibility. Adam said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And it kind of sounds like uh, Adam is blaming uh, Eve, and uh, in a way he is, but really he's blaming God. He's saying, uh, if you hadn't put this woman here with me, none of this would have happened. It's your fault. So Adam blames God, and, and he blames the woman as well. Eve blames the devil. She says, a serpent deceived me, and I ate. And nothing has changed. Because when we succumb to temptation, often we, we point the finger. We say, why did God make me like this? Can't help my desires, can't help my urges, can't help who I am. It's God's fault. Or we might say, the devil made me do it. I'm experiencing spiritual attack. It's his fault. He ruins everything. We might blame someone else. Siblings do this all the time. You know, there's a, there's a disagreement, an argument, a kerfuffle. And uh, it's always the other person's fault. It's uncanny. It's very rare that someone will actually... Uh, take responsibility for their own sinful behavior. 
Uh, in the early 1900s, the Times of London wrote to several prominent authors with the question, what's wrong with the world? One author wrote back, dear sir, regarding your article, what's wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. It's very easy to see what's wrong with the world. It's very easy to see what's wrong with other people. Perhaps we should pay more attention to what's wrong with us, what needs to change in here. Of course, when it comes to blaming other people, the worst person we could possibly blame is God. And James uh, deals with this specifically. He says, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does God tempt anyone. Uh, God and evil are mutually exclusive. There is no connection between the two. Uh, God is, of course, aware of evil. He came into the world to defeat it. But God can't be contaminated by evil, and he doesn't tempt us to do things that are evil. James makes it clear that we must take responsibility for our own sin. He says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So James is describing there a process that begins in the heart. It begins with our own evil desire. Sin shouldn't take us by surprise. It's not like we're walking along the road and we suddenly slip on a banana skin. We're like, "Ah, where did that come from? I didn't see that coming. Sin starts with an evil desire. And if we allow that desire to reside in our hearts and our heads, then it won't be very long before we act on it. You know, if we allow hateful thoughts to dwell in our minds, it won't be long before we do or say something spiteful. If we allow greed, envy, and the love of money to take hold in our minds, then we might decide that we want to fiddle our tax return or gain wealth through some other unscrupulous means. If we fill our minds with lustful thoughts, uh, we may find ourselves turning to pornography or even an adulterous relationship. If our thought life is full of vanity and self-adulation, it won't be long before we're displaying narcissistic behaviors. If we are to fight against a sin in our lives, we must win the battle of our minds. Never has the expression to nip something in the bud been more appropriate. And for most of us, there are evil thoughts or desires of one thought or another sort or another uh, that have been rattling around in our heads for years, decades even. So much so that we might think, I just can't dislodge these thoughts. They're there. They've always been there. But each time those thoughts enter our minds, we have a choice. Do we entertain them and dwell on them? Or do we push them out and try to think of something else? I'm not saying it's easy, but this is what it means to fight against the sin in our lives. Of course, it's helpful to remember that sin is harmful to us. You know, if we're daydreaming about living in a mansion with a yacht and a Lamborghini, we kind of imagine that that would be the perfect life, the best thing for us. It, it seems very attractive. And, and what's the harm in daydreaming about that anyway? Well, it could cause us to become discontented, envious, greedy, materialistic. And if we were tremendously wealthy, would it help or hinder our relationship with Jesus? 
chances are it would be the ruin of us. It's interesting uh, that the word James uses for entice is linked to fishing. Uh, If you go fishing with a lure, the fish comes along, it sees a lure, it thinks, oh, that looks nice, that's good, I want that, that will do me good. Actually, probably a fish doesn't give it that much thought, but you get the idea. And that's how it works with temptation and sin. We think, oh, yeah, that looks good. I want that, whatever it is. But it's not good. It's not good, and it ends up having a detrimental effect on us. In some cases, it can ruin our whole lives. We have to be very clear in our minds. Anything that God does not want us to do will not be good for us. Of course, every human being sins. And if we don't repent and put our faith in Jesus, our sin will lead to death. That's what James means when he says sin gives birth to death. We thank God that he came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ and he died so that we don't have to. So we must be steadfast in our resolve to fight against sin because we want to be, we want to be obedient to a loving God who really does know what's best for us. We can trust him. Just one caveat. James tells us that evil desires give rise to temptation, and that's true. That's what we've been uh, talking about. But temptation isn't always the result of evil desires. Jesus was tempted, but he didn't have evil desires in his heart and his mind. Uh, Jesus was tempted by the devil. We can be tempted by the devil. Uh, Sometimes temptation is presented to us like a choice. Okay, you can do this, and that's the right thing. Or you could do this, and that's so much easier, and wouldn't that be so much better, and don't you really want this? It's like a choice. And in that situation, we have to say, no, that's not the right way to go. That's not what I'm about. That's not right. So evil desires give rise to temptation, but not all temptation is the result of evil desires that have kind of been festering within us. Finally, we see that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Uh, Father of the heavenly lights is uh, an ancient Jewish way of, of talking about God as our creator. So it's like saying our creator God does not change like shifting shadows. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he only wants to give us good gifts and protect us from harm. God is absolutely steadfast in his love and faithfulness towards us. And he asks us to be steadfast in our faith. Real faith is steadfast. Steadfast in its pursuit of righteousness. Steadfast in its love of God. And steadfast in its resolve to fight against sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you love us more than we could ever imagine, uh, that you want the very best for us. And we pray that increasingly we can bring our lives and every area of our lives in line with your will, that we can live in obedience to you, um, that we continually seek your kingdom, and that will be our number one priority. And this is a constant daily fight for all of us to make you the number one priority, to put you at the center of our lives. But we pray that you help us to grow in this area and to grow in our faith 
and to grow in our steadfastness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.